Hi everyone, I'm Dave Aldridge, this is Deeper Centile. I'm keeping it short and sweet and regular throughout the month of August. I've aimed for a short episode every day, I'm managing that so far. I think I'm picking up a couple of new listeners, maybe around the reviews I'm doing of, of King of Dungeons, which will carry on for a little while. You may notice that I do like to receive call-ins and I play the call-ins and I try to respond to those that I receive. You can do this via the Anchor app and you don't need to be an Anchor podcaster to do it. To make that easy for you, I've put a link in the show notes. If you follow that link, you can leave me a message if you want to know more about my, my views on that game or, or any of the other things I talk about. I'm really keen to get those call-ins, so please do follow the link and leave me a message. Come in, my child, out of the cold and listen how the story's told. From fairy tales to happenstance, the dice rule every random chance. Take off your coat and stay a while, we'll roll in that deep percent time. Hi Dave, it's me man. Uh, I'm not going to call you Professor Percy today, just in a spirit of goodwill, and I don't want it to get old. <laughs> Listening to your episode on King of Dungeons, talking about monsters, I applaud the lack of monster stats in a system. I like to see a generator, and I point you to Maze Rats. Maze Rats also puts that to one side, just gives you a method for quickly creating monsters i think this is the way to go if you want to really bring the uh, the weird and the creative to your games awesome stuff mate catch you later cheers colin thanks for the call in there colin the legendary spike pit of course maze rats is equally bold yeah good call uh, I'd forgotten about that. Fantastic little game, Maze Rats, isn't it? So many tables and insights in such a few short pages. That random spell generator is really something else, a fantastic uh, device. Yeah, good call, Colin. I'm calling this bit King of Dungeons The Rest. I've talked quite a bit about guilds and characters and foes and I just wanted to pick up on some last few bits about the game a few mechanics that I had some more comments on so I've already commented a little bit on the three defenses they are named for the saves in the OGL fortitude reflex and will but they are not saves they are defenses and this picks up on the 13th age innovation of having these three defenses which were derived from the median of a collection of stats in each case uh, and King of Dungeons keeps that up so for example um, your will stat is the median modifier of your intelligence charisma and wisdom and that is used as a defense against well pretty much anything that would target you mentally or in terms of fear and so on so I like that they they have a wide range of uses so it's implied yes if you read the um, one of the thief's abilities, uh, you see that even traps roll attacks against relevant defences, which I quite like. I very much like um, 
you know, having traps kick in when they would um, and not spending the whole time. It's not that kind of game, spending the whole time checking for traps, checking at doors and so on. Talked quite a lot about guilds. There is a lot of guidance. The guilds are, as I say, they're, they're as much world really as you get in the game, and they're the centerpiece of the structure of adventures in King of King of Dungeons. So we get guidance here on resources, retainers, and so on. But all of it's narrative. There are no mechanics. This is all really just guidance on how you run the kind of interactions that will keep a guild-focused uh, campaign moving. Some notes on artifacts. Uh, Baz intends artifacts to be rare in King of Dungeons. I think that's fine. So you might have a charter which involves going after a particular artifact, but you're not going to have uh, characters collecting um, a whole bunch of magic items. I quite like that. It does mean that you lose out. One of the things that 13th Age did really well is it had a really nice way of treating magic items um, that was quite innovative. Um, but you're not going to have that here. The strength of that is that you still had a bit of strange resource management in 13th Age. You had these various um, runes and oils that you could give out. It was one of the ways you could make the icon system work. If you rolled a beneficial icon die and you didn't really know how to make it work in play, you could bung the players some oils and some runes and that would help in combat. But I've mentioned it before, there is absolutely no mechanical resource management in King of Dungeons. If it looks like you should have it in your backpack, put it in your backpack. If it looks like it should be a big issue for your guild to get hold of it, put it into the narrative. Otherwise, um, it's all hand-waved, and I really like that. Um, even healing potions in this game. Healing potions don't take up equipment slots, anything like that. You're assumed to have an endless amount. The way that healing potions are regulated is not by having to manage your coin and your encumbrance, but by the introduction, I've never seen this anywhere else, but the introduction of overdose and addiction rules. It's worth getting the game just to have a look at those really, but that's how it's done. So you can always have a full bandolier of healing potions. You can chug them whenever you want, but if you chug them too many times in, in, um, uh, in a scene, then the danger is you're going to become addicted. And if you chug them in such a way that they take you over your hit point total, then you overdose. That is absolutely fantastic, a lovely way of dealing with that. Saves. I've talked about the saves before. I got really excited by the saves when I saw that in 13th Age. Um, they were used in lots of different ways. So these are not um, attribute saves. In 13th Age they were just done on set values on a d20. Here to keep them even more separate from attribute saves they're done on a d6 in King of Dungeons. And you can use them for all sorts of things. You use them to see if um, if abilities recharge and you can use them for durations if you have an ongoing uh, effect then you can roll a save at the end of the, the relevant character's turn to see if the effect ends or not I love that or spell durations anything you like um, instead of having to do timekeeping so this is a bit like the usage die innovation that came along in the in the black hack um, I love that I love I love just recording that um, the effect ends on a save rather than having to count the number of rounds um, 
that it, that it still remains for. So saves here, an easy save is a two or more on a D6. Uh, a normal save is four or more, and a hard save is six or more. That's an interesting decision. Um, your normal save has a 50-50 chance, but then your easy save is barely ever going to fail, and your hard save is barely ever going to succeed. That's obviously deliberate. I wonder if the saves could have been easy 3+, plus, normal 4+, plus, and hard 5+. Plus. I think on a D6 that's still enough differentiation, but it means you might sometimes fail your easy saves rather than just a 1 in 6, and um, sometimes succeed at your hard saves. Um, but that's what you've got, 2+, plus, 4+, plus, 6+. Plus. You've got three different ty types of time in King of Dungeons. Adventure time is your sort of your exploration roles if you're going to make roles for interaction. Um, and then guild time is when the uh, players are acting as a group. This is an innovation in King of Dungeons, so the guild has statistics, the guild has expertises of, of its own, and the statistics. Um, correspond to the six attributes and they are derived from the median of all of the players bonuses to the various attributes. Uh, I really quite like this, obviously you've, there's a little bit of fiddling about, you've only got to do it once, once you've created all the characters uh, and then your guild has a set of stats so if everybody's sneaking together then you use the guild, uh, the relevant guild stat and so on. A little bit on running the games. Uh, encumbrance, the paragraph on encumbrance just begins, ah, oh, whatever. <laughs> and then goes on to say, if you really want an encumbrance rule, by all means, but who does? Uh, notes on flashbacks. This is the, exactly the kind of um, hand-wavy approach that Baz takes. If it looks like there should be a relevant bit of kit, but it's not written down on the, uh, you know, on the characters, uh, the player's character sheet, then uh, you can do a flashback to role-play um, the preparation that the character made to ensure that they were appropriately prepared at this point. That is perfect for um, heist games and, and points of high drama, but again, there's no mechanics for that. You just move into role-playing a flashback. Similarly, I've mentioned for, for travel. You don't worry about lots and lots of um, detailed travel roles. Um, if it looks like there's an interesting journey, then you uh, role-play a montage and you hand over to the characters to detail both the obstacles they encountered and the way that they overcame them. Notes on interaction. Again, Baz's guidance on interaction is basically you role play it you know if it really looks like there should be a role in a particular circumstance by all means make a role otherwise you role play it here's a funny thing about guild actions that i meant to mention each class is considered to have an affinity with a particular attribute so strength is favored by warriors dexterity is favored by rogues correcting myself by the way elsewhere on this episode I've talked about thieves there aren't thieves there are rogues um, and so on so mages have got intelligence and interestingly scholars get constitution anyway the way this favored attribute works is if the party lacks a member of the relevant class then when they are attempting a guild action linked to that ability they roll at disadvantage so if you're all doing something dexterity based and you haven't got a rogue then you are at disadvantage or if you're doing something int based and you haven't got a mage then you're at disadvantage to that role that's nice um, my initial suspicion about scholars being linked to con was that this was just for neatness because you needed a class per attribute. Um, the way Baz has subsequently justified this to me is to say, well, 
this is to do with all your Indiana Jones type stuff. So if you think about the scholars as Indiana Jones, you can't go too far wrong. So surviving in the wilderness and so on. That justified it to me a bit. As I'm saying it now, it seems like it's just a little bit too neat. Uh, but I think if I was rolling, uh, if you think in terms of uh, Lord of the Rings maybe and Frodo and Sam being led by Aragorn, trying to make their way over a long march, that's a constitution type role where you can imagine that a, that a scholar would be useful, someone who knew the ways of surviving in the wilderness. I don't know, I'm not 100% sold on that. But I like the general idea that uh, this is going to be more difficult for your party if you haven't got the, uh, the expert there. And the third kind of time, obviously, apart from adventure time and guild time, is combat time. Um, here there are some innovations to the 13th Age rules. Baz suggests an initiative system, which he acknowledges is fiddly, um, but he really wants the different uh, abilities to kick in in combat. So he suggests in round one, initiative is rolled on wisdom, um, because it's determined by general alertness of the characters and then in round two by dexterity because it's how quickly you can get into gear and then in subsequent rounds by constitution because um, really it's to do with how tired then you get in the fight. That is an interesting decision. Um, there, there, are, there are some interesting calls that Baz made. Sometimes he wants to keep it really simple so weapon damage is a d6 unless you're a rogue it's a d8. But then we've got... Um, three different ways of, of determining initiative at the start of a combat. I'm going to give it a go, see how it works. Uh, how he deals with death. Um, it looks like you've got loads of ways. You've got rallying, you've got various class abilities, and you've got healing potions to keep you up in combat. It looks like when you're down, you're down. Um, and then when you're turned over at the end of a combat, um, you get to roll a con check to see if you're actually okay. If that doesn't work out, one other character can roll a wisdom check to see if they can help you out. And if both of those checks fail, uh, then you're out of it. So it doesn't look like you've got anything like death saves, anything like that, or any sort of drama in the combat to see whether you're going to slip away as you're bleeding to death. You know, you want to you use the range of abilities to keep you up while you're up. And it looks like when you're down, you're down, and then you get those rolls at the end. That's how I'm interpreting the rules. Should talk about the Escalation die. So the Escalation die is a brilliant innovation in 13th Age. Baz takes that pretty much as written there and then adds one extra element to it. So the way the escalation die works, it had a lot more explanation of how it kept pace going and things like that in the 13th Age rules. Baz has stripped that down, but, I, but I'll probably use the same kind of spirit. The way it worked in 13th Age, in the first round of combat there's no escalation die. Then in the next round you get a big d6, plonk it into the middle of the table showing one. And then all of the players get to add a plus one to their attack rolls that round. Next round you move it up to two and so on. Um, and in 13th Age it was suggested but only if the players are sort of going all out and keeping engaged in the combat otherwise if it looks like they're fighting very tentatively or very defensively then you might leave it where it is or start rolling it back. Uh, monsters don't use or foes in King of Dungeons don't use 
the um, Escalation Dyer, with some exceptions. In 13th Age, that was a cool thing about dragons. Dragons are cool, so they get to add in the, uh, the bonus from the Escalation Die as well. But some player abilities and some foe abilities can actually muck about with the Escalation Die. Um, but what that enables you to do is it enables you to make foes a little bit tougher. So your adventurer tier foes have got better bonuses, better defenses than you might expect. And the way that that works dramatically is at the start of a combat, they're more likely to hit and they're harder to hit, but things balance out as the combat goes on and eventually that maybe tips back into the character's favor once you get to the, you know, into the combat. So that's a nice way. I think the idea in 13th Age was this, this kept combats to a nice length um, but it but it makes for some interesting tactical decisions. So so you you want to hold back maybe some of your really powerful powerful abilities until they get a higher attack bonus later in the combat. But obviously you don't want to hold them hold them back too long if you're if you're taking lots of damage. So that makes for some nice additional choices. The bit that Baz has added is that. Um, Fumbles are normally on a natural one, but as the escalation die kicks in, your fumble rage increases in line with the escalation die. So once you're on uh, escalation die four, you now fumble on a natural one to four. Um, and Baz's explanation for that is you're more likely to make mistakes as time goes on. Uh, so there's more fumbling. I'm not 100% sure what I think about that yet, uh, but I'll see how it works in play final things to talk about so i like random tables there is only there are a couple of tables you know d6 tables around cultures and aspects of cultures they're quite optional and then there's one page 101 there's one random retainer table uh, i don't know why baz decides that retainers need a random table and most other aspects of the game don't but i'm happy to have a random table i'll certainly be introducing quite a few more random tables into my games Looking forward to running this game. Things I'm nervous about, I'm excited about a great deal. I'm excited to see how the abilities play out. I'm excited to see how, how quickly I can, I can put together decent monsters. I'm excited to see how players take that mix of very free-form um, interactions and adventure time and then much crunchier combat. I'm a little bit nervous, as I mentioned before, the range of different types of class ability still seems like there'll be some fiddly bookkeeping. Players are going to have to be really careful to record whether they've used their recharge abilities, whether they've used their daily powers per battle powers, some powers are twice per battle. With the recharge, if you don't roll recharge after a battle, you don't get that ability for the next battle, but you do get it for the one after. I can see I'm going to be wanting to introduce some some columns and boxes and grids with some marks in. Ideally, maybe a card system would be quite good, but I'm not going to be able to do that in online play. So that's just one thing I've got some trepidation about, the fiddliness of tracking the various um, powers. Uh, but uh, this is my last review piece on King of Dungeons. After this, I'm getting a game together, and you're probably going to hear some reports on actual play. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact Dave, please leave a message on Anchor, email dpercentile at gmail.com, or find him on Twitter at d underscore percentile.